Well, if you would, open up your Bibles. We're in Ephesians chapter 4, and today we're looking at verses 17 through 24. Um, it's in your pew Bible on page 978, or you can just follow along on your bulletin. It's there. Now, you know, it's been almost a month since we've last looked at this, looked at this um, letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote. So let me just give you a quick uh, overview of what we've done so far. Uh, if, we, if you remember, the first three chapters, um, Paul is teaching, he's going into the doctrine. He is sharing with us what is true about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Now, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he is um, telling us what's, how to live the practical implications of the truth in chapters 1 through 3. So, chapters 1 through 3, what is true? 4, 5, and 6, what to do. And if you recall from last time we were together, we began in chapter 4, and Paul stressed um, the importance of walking in a manner that is worthy of the calling that we have received as Christians. And he stressed the importance of the body of Christ, each of us working together to build each other up and maturing in Christ. And now he issues today a strong injunction. He says, do not live any longer like those who do not know God. Do not walk along the path of the pagans. No, live as those who are now alive in Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word to us. It reminds us of the great truth that we have died in Christ and risen to new life. May we um, hear from you afresh this morning the true truth about what you've done for us and the way in which we are able to apply this to our lives. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis wrote a book titled The Great Divorce, which depicts the stark difference between heaven and hell. Now, the genre is fantasy fiction, um, but Lewis does an excellent job of portraying biblical truths. In one of the stories, there is a, there is a character that is tormented by a little red lizard that lives on his shoulder. The lizard represents indwelling sin that we experience as human beings, and this lizard constantly mocks him. Uh, he, there's a time, though, when along comes an angel, and the angel offers to remove the lizard. <laughs> At first, the man is thrilled, and he thinks, 
I can be rid of this thing that so torments me. But then he realizes that, that the angel is aglow with a heavenly heat and, and that if, if the angel were to take away the lizard, it would in fact kill the, the lizard. That would be the way in which it would be taken off of his shoulder. So the young man suggests, well, perhaps, perhaps we don't need to deal with this just yet. Perhaps we can lay, wait a little bit longer to take this lizard off of my shoulders. The angel, though, will not be put off. He says, this moment contains all moments. The lizard sees his life as being threatened and he, and he seeks to protect his life and, and, he, and he seeks to unsettle the man by, by telling him, uh, giving him suggestions and doubts. And, and the, the picture that we see here and the way in which this work, works out, it, it reminds all of us who, who are familiar with, with indwelling sin just how these temptations can come about. Be careful, the lizard says. The angel can do all he says. He can kill me. One, one fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. That's not natural. How could you live? You'd be only a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only cold, bloodless. He's an abstract thing. It may be natural from him, but not for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit I've, done, I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I will give you nothing but really nice dreams. All sweet and fresh and almost innocent. Almost innocent. Similarly, we justify the sin that dwells in us. One of my seminary professors, Brian Chapel, whom I'm, I'm indebted to this morning, says this. He says, we, we reason, it can't really hurt. And even if it is wrong, to be without such flaws is practically not to be human. Who could live that way? Only the warped and legalistic would deny themselves such things. I have a better understanding of grace than that. God will forgive me, and I won't let it go too far again. With such words, we, we let our lizards live. We convince ourselves that the remnant of sin in our lives, really, it's really not that dangerous, and that almost innocent is safe enough. In the first three chapters of his letter, Paul opens our eyes to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. From, e from eternity past, God has chosen us in Christ to be adopted as sons and daughters. Though we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive together with Christ. And he has seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Now, in chapter 4, he's challenging the Christians in Ephesus with the practical realities of what this all means. There is seriousness in Paul's words. He begins by saying, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. 
the wording in the original Greek suggests that, that, that Christians now must walk on a different path than the rest of the world. There's this reality that in order to be faithful to the calling that God has upon us, we are to no longer walk as we once did in the ways of the world. If we simply walk down the same paths as everyone else, there must be something amiss in our Christian life. So this morning, we too are challenged by Paul's words. Will you be content with the almost innocence in your Christian walk? Will you rationalize to yourself that since you're under grace, well, the bar must have been lowered? Will you let your lizard live? Or will you agree with Paul that the, that the way of the world is a way of, of darkness? It's the way of futility and that in Christ the old has died and the new has been born. And therefore, by God's grace, we choose the way of righteousness and, and holiness. Paul's instruction is quite simple. He's saying that old person is dead. So live as as if he is dead. And you are now a new creation, a new person. Live out that reality. Or as F.F. Bruce puts it, be what you are. Be in practice what the calling of God has made you. Now, it's easier said than done. So, Let's dig in. We're going to divide our time into two areas. First, we're going to look at the way of death, which we have died to. And then we're going to look at the way of life, which we have come alive to in Christ. First, the way of death. Now, I've named this point the way of death because in verses 17 through 19, the people who are described there are literally walking dead. They're captivated by darkness and alienated from God. They're hardened of the heart and they're callous. They're insensitive to God and to God's ways. And and the reality is this, this dark path leads one away from God and towards death. And when one dies, you continue to be separated in darkness from, from God. And so what Paul wants his readers to see is how absolutely fruitless the life is of going back to that way of living. He says that the the way of the godless is the way of futility. Do you see that? The Greek word here is a word that conveys, uh, it expresses a sense of meaningless and uselessness and worthlessness and emptiness. What Paul is doing here is he's, he's pointing out the futility of the unregenerate Mind. When I say unregenerate, what do, what do I mean? Well, um, God must regenerate us. If you are alive in Christ, it's because God has made you alive in him. Jesus told Nicodemus that uh, he must be born again if he's to see the kingdom of heaven. And this is, this is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to make us alive. Earlier in this letter, Paul wrote this. He said, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And then there's a but. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together in Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved. Paul first describes the condition of those who live the way of death. And this 
condition is the unbeliever's mind, we see it's darkened and distant. Look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. We have a number of odd pets in the Middlecoff household. Um, one of them is a standings day gecko named Ziggy. Um, it kind of looks a little bit like that green geico gecko. Uh, he lives, he, we don't know, it could be a she, but we'll just call him a he. He lives in a little 20-gallon aquarium surrounded by fake plastic trees with a fake plastic pond and a little fake uh, plastic rock house. And every morning at 7.30, the sun, I mean, <clears throat> the heat lamp turns on. And every night at 7.30, the, the heat lamp clicks off. And then once a week, Crickets fall out of the sky. (laughs) This little 20-gallon aquarium is all the world he knows. His understanding cannot extend beyond the borders of that glass aquarium. He is alive without any sense of the eternal, without any sense of what is beautiful. Uh, He is alive without any sense of what gives hope and meaning and purpose. My friends, that's the picture that Paul is portraying of someone who has not been made alive in Christ. They're in darkness. Their minds are clueless to the realities of God and the hope that is found in him. You know, people get offended when you say they're living in darkness. Shouldn't surprise you. Uh, Jesus said these words. He said, light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In addition to darkened minds, they're also distant from God. Paul says that they are alienated from the life of God. Did you notice he said they're alienated, they're separated, they're they're distant. But not just from God, but from what? From the life that is in God. From the life of God. See, those who reject God think they can find life apart from him, but it's in him that life is found. We live in an age when people think that it's the Christians who live in futility of mind. And T. Wright comments, There is a persistent untruth which has made its way into the popular imagination in our day. That Christianity means closing off your mind, ceasing all serious thought, and living in a shallow fantasy world divorced from the solid truths of real life. But Paul says it is the Christian who has come alive. God has called him or her out of darkness into his glorious light. And this new life that we have now is found in God, in God alone. That's the condition of mankind apart from God in darkness and distant to him. Now for the cause. Same, same verse, verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. This condition that the world finds itself in of, of darkened minds and distance, distance from God is because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Hardness of heart lies at the core of all who are walking distant and, dark, and in darkness um, before God. Brian Chappell writes, 
Paul does not merely speak of hard heart, but of hardened heart. The word in Greek implies a certain stubbornness and reflects the consequences of opportunities being resisted. Repeatedly making wrong choices causes the heart to become callous. Can you see that? It does. Making it ever more insensitive to God's will and his ways. The sclerosis of the heart is the result of deliberate choices repeatedly made against the life ordained by God. And it is possible for such disease to enter into the Christian life. Dr. Chapel then goes on to tell a story of a pastor he knew who had to confront one of his elders. One of his elders had decided he was going to leave his wife to go pursue a relationship with a younger woman. The pastor took the elder out to lunch, and as he sat before this elder, he cautioned him. He said, do not presume upon the grace of God as you go out in this rebellion against him. And what we see, though, is that this man's heart was not softened in any way, but instead with unblinking eyes, kind of like a lizard, he said this. He said, I have never felt more alive. You know, in a certain way, it's true. The lust, the passions in his physical body certainly made him come alive. But his spiritual understanding was in the dark. How did the man get this way? Well, he didn't just wake up one morning and say, you know what, I'm going to love another woman other than my wife and I'm going to leave her. No doubt it was the repeated giving in to the almost innocent choices over months or perhaps years. All these seemingly little sins began to rub against his heart and causing it to become more and more calloused to the ways of God and to God himself. And the consequences of a calloused heart is a darkened mind, and a darkened mind separates itself from the life that is in God. And it tells itself, I have never felt more alive. So that's the condition and the cause. Now for the result. The result is seen in verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Here's what Paul's describing here. He's he's describing the hedonistic lifestyle. Eat, drink, for tomorrow you die. This lifestyle has been around ever since since the dawn of time. Um, It's a lifestyle that says, I'm going to pursue my own desires. I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and how dare you ever say that what I'm doing is wrong. Finding joy in life is the fulfillment of life, no matter where that takes you. The problem with this is that living like this can never fully satisfy. It's like the heroin addict who constantly needs to have more and more drugs in order to get the same high. The hedonistic lifestyle always demands more and more. The senses become calloused and desensitized. And and so the pursuit becomes even more demanding. The chase gets taken to new elevated levels. There's a continual need for more and more. That's what Paul means when he writes, they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. 
when we turn to the ways of the world to provide the longings of our life, what we find out is the world actually squeezes out of us more and more life. That's the way of death to which the Christian has died. Paul says to the Christians in Ephesus, you have died to this way of death and have been made alive. Now live the way of life. That's our next point. You know, last week we celebrated Easter. And Easter means that by virtue of your faith in Jesus Christ, your old self has died. It went to the cross with Christ. And now as Christ is resurrected, so too all who place their faith in him, resurrected to new life. You are a new person, a new creation. And Paul wants us to see this truth. Because you are now a new person in Christ, you must put off the old self so that you may put on the new self. Puritans call this process mortifying the flesh. That's the phenomenon that C.S. Lewis depicts as the story of the red lizard and the ghost man comes to a conclusion. You know, the angel does attack the lizard, takes its claws and powerful heat and, and, and strikes down the lizard, chokes life from it. The lizard falls to the ground, but surprisingly it does not die. It changes. The ugly red lizard becomes a stallion. And the man who was once a ghost of a man rises up to ride on the stallion. He who was master is now mastered. He who was in bondage is now free. This is the picture of the Christian life. Now, how do we appropriate this into our lives? We see it in verses 20 to 24. First, we see that the source of this life is Christ. In verses 20 and 21, Paul shows us that the source of our new life comes through Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, first, this word assuming. Paul Paul isn't um, questioning whether these are Christians or not. No, Paul is is using rhetoric. He's basically saying something on the lines of, and and you're Christians, right? Of course you are, right? You're Christians. All right. He's going back to the basics. The late great football coach of the Green Bay Packers, Vince Lombardi, was once so frustrated with the poor performance of his team that he had the team gather the next morning for practice. And as he did, he gritted his teeth and stared at them and said, today we're going back to the basics. And then he lifted up a football and he continued to yell at them and said, gentlemen, this is a football. (laughs) That's going back to the basics, isn't it? That's what Paul here is similarly doing in our our text this morning. But But it isn't a football that he holds before their eyes. What is it that he holds before their eyes? Gentlemen, we need to get back to the basics. And the basics are, what is it, a list of rules? Did he give them the Ten Commandments? The pagans do these bad things, and now Christians do these good things. No, Paul doesn't open up a, a ball, hold up a ball of, of good behavior. But guess what? Often, as Christians, that's what we want from our leaders. Just tell me the things I can't do, and tell me the list of things that I, that I can do, so that I can know I'm doing a good job as a Christian. But understand this. The legalistic lifestyle isn't what the believer is to put on. 
There's no freedom in shackling yourself to a list of Christian rules and regulations. Not that there isn't a place for, for uh, rules, but they don't take, that's not the ball that he is holding up here. You know, when you, when you give your life to a legalistic living out of rules and regulations of what a good Christian is, it's just, you're just creating another lizard to sit on your shoulder. To, to heckle you and mock you when you fail. Or, or to build up your pridefulness because you're actually doing the list right. That's not what Paul holds up. He doesn't hold up a list of rules to follow so that you can be a good Christian boy or girl. What is the ball that he holds up? He holds up Christ. Do you see how Christ-focused he is here? Look at that. Look at the verse again. He says, That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him. And then check this out. As the truth is in Jesus. He, he wants the, them to focus on Christ. My friends, Christians here, our, our, our calling in life is to focus upon Christ. And when you do, the rest of the rules will fall into place, right? There will not be rules. There will just be you living out who you are in Christ. What Paul wants them to see is in contrast to the Gentiles who are walking in darkness, the Christians have been enlightened in Christ. Now, Paul here isn't just speaking of an intellectual knowledge here. He's, he's pointing to a relational knowledge. When, when a person places their trust in Jesus Christ, he or she just doesn't receive truth about Jesus No, they receive Jesus. To know the truth of Christ means that you've come to know Christ. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Why? Because the truth points you to Christ who sets you free. The truth that we hear about Christ takes us into a relationship with him. And so we no longer walk in futility of mind. We're no longer in darkness. We're no longer distant from God. So that's the source of life. Now, how does this work into your lives? See, it is in Christ that our new lives are to be found. But, but if we're honest and we look at ourselves, I can at least be honest and look at myself, I often don't see a lot of new there. I was reminded of that this morning. I said something I shouldn't have said. I was reminded that there's still a, a long ways for me to go. There's a lot of old marks still clinging to me. We see in ourselves patterns of beliefs and behaviors that line up more with our surrounding culture than with the kingdom of heaven. So how do we put this into practice? Paul says it looks a lot like something you're already familiar with. Have you ever been, I don't know, camping or hiking or on a marathon or I don't know, you've been working really hard and you're just stinky and sweaty and dirty, and you just can't wait to get home and get in the shower, take a long, hot steam shower, and get out and put on fresh, clean clothes. That's it. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul is instructing us to take off the dirty, stinky clothes of our former lives and to, and to be washed afresh with it, a renewing of our minds as to who we are in Christ and, and to put on Christ, to put on that, that new self. Look at verse 22 through 24. 
Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And and, uh, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. To live differently means that we put off the old self. The, The Greek word here, to put off, literally means to take off and lay aside like clothing. That person you used to be before coming to Christ, here's what we need to know has taken place. What has been done with that person? Christ has taken that old you, broken and sinful and living in darkness, and he has taken you, the old you, upon the cross with him. You died with him. That old you is is dead. And you have now risen to new life in him. I'm not making this up. Elsewhere, Paul writes uh, in Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we'd be no longer enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Then he goes on to say, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In Christ Jesus. Your old self is dead. You are now made alive in Christ. Consider yourself this way. This is the the renewal of the mind that Paul is talking about. Christians, we need to know really what has taken place in this new life that you have. What, What Paul is describing here, he's not describing that in Jesus now you're you're a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. That you are both old person and new person at the same time, and they're battling within you, and who are you going to be today? No, understand this. Contemplate it. Meditate upon it. Because in understanding this, in allowing it to freshly uh, cleanse our minds of any other way of thinking, it's what empowers us to walk this new life. You are dead. That old you is dead. And now you are alive in Christ Jesus. If we could just believe that, because it's, it's from this understanding that walking in a way of righteousness and holiness begins to flow. The motivation changes. You're no longer doing a list of rules. You're, 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 you're living out the person that you already are. You're saying no to the old, saying yes to what is new. That's what it looks like, that... that it, This renewal of our mind before we put on any other clothes. If your mind isn't renewed, what are you going to put on? You're going to put on the dirty clothes of works religiosity. Right? I've been a bad Christian. I'm not going to renew my mind. I better be a good Christian. No, when you, when you soak in what God has done for you, that you're dead and you're now alive, you're like, it, it, it transforms you. It causes you to, to love your Heavenly Father. It causes you to want to, to be near Him. It causes you to, to say, how could I ever have done that? And it causes you to walk in newness of life. This is where the power comes from. It comes from knowing who you already are and living that out. Now, the old person is dead. But the influences of your old self, they still linger. And so until Christ returns, this process of taking off the old and and having our minds reminded and renewed once again so that we can put on the new, it will take place daily, if not hourly. 
Chapel writes this, this process is never easy because the habits and patterns of the old self were not something purely extraneous to us, but were integral to our old way of living and thinking. That is why the red lizard of C.S. Lewis gets such a hearing from the man on whose shoulder the creature rides. The young man recognizes that if the angel kills the lizard, then the man himself, as he knew himself, and as he was oriented to this world, that man must die too. That is what so, is so threatening to kill past sin patterns and practices is to lose the self and the world that we knew. And we lie to ourselves and we say, I can't give that up. I might miss out on something. I was working on that deal. (laughs) And yet, what makes this renewal of the mind so feasible to us is the realization that putting on the new self introduces the believer to the new reality of being like God in true righteousness and holiness. Christian, your life is no longer bound up in the sins of your past. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And he's transforming you in righteousness and holiness. And because of this, you must put off your old self. The lizard must die. It cannot be nurtured or postponed another day. It's only then that that we have this, because of this truth of what Paul is showing us, it's, it's only then that we have this renewing of our mind that we're able to joyfully, with a heavenly motivation, put on the new self. And what a joy it is. We're, we're being recreated in the likeness of God. It makes sense because we're no longer alienated from him. We, we know Christ. We've been brought into him. And, and if God is the God of life, then when we're in Christ, his life comes to us. We become transformed. And what this looks like is true righteousness and holiness. Now, the problem is the culture in which we live in puts its hands up to its ears when we say righteousness and holiness. We might as well be throwing water on the wicked witch of the West. And even for the Christian, the lizard can perch on your shoulder and whisper things like, nobody's perfect. Cut yourself some slack. Surely, surely God wouldn't want you to be absolutely righteous and holy. Surely there's a little wiggle room. And what would you do if you really were righteous and holy? It just doesn't seem like a lot of fun. My friends, don't believe those lies. Righteousness is beautiful. What is righteousness? The righteousness is when everything is right and good. If the world were full of perfect righteousness, every moment of your day would be joyful ecstasy. And there is no righteousness without holiness. Contrary to what our culture tells us, holiness is not a wet blanket thrown on an almost cool party. Holiness prepares us to be in the presence of our Heavenly Father. 
and it's at his right hand there are pleasures evermore. This morning we've seen Paul is he's quite emphatic, isn't he? He says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. Now, it doesn't say we don't love unbelievers. We do. We, we care for them. We want to minister to their needs. We want to show them the love of Christ. We want to bring the light of the gospel into their lives so they no longer need to live in futility, but rather can live in great hope in the gospel. But we must not settle for half measures in our own life. We must not settle for almost innocence. It kind of looks silly when we live this way. Consider the caterpillar and the butterfly. The caterpillar turns into a butterfly. But before turning into a butterfly, have you ever seen a caterpillar? It's kind of slow and cumbersome. They've got these little legs. And so they spend a lot of energy trying to organize these little legs to crawl up green, crawl up the, the green stalks. And what do they eat? They, they eat the, 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 the bitter leaf, things like flowers. But then at some point, the caterpillar turns into a butterfly. And the butterfly no longer is bound to walk along the ground. It's been set free to fly. And no longer does it masticate on the fibrous green of the plant. It does what? No, it sucks in the sweet nectar of the flower. Imagine how foolish it would look to your eyes to see a butterfly walking along like a caterpillar, walking up the plant and trying, because it can't anymore, trying to chew upon a leaf. My friends, that's what it looks like when the believer goes back to trying to live out the life they had before Christ. It's, it's, it's foolish. And we can laugh at it, except for the fact that it takes us away from the life that we have in Christ. It hardens our heart. It causes us to be callous to God and his goodness towards us. We must put off the old and put on the new. This is daunting work. It really is. But Christ has given you everything you need to do this work. He has given you himself. He has given you his Holy Spirit. He has given you his word. He has given you access into heaven itself. And guess what? He has given you each other, the body of Christ, by which we can encourage each other to walk in this newness of life. Some of you here this morning may be walking in darkness. And maybe perhaps God is opening your eyes to the, the hope that is in Christ. I, I encourage you to turn towards Him. Find your life in Him, not in the ways of this world. It's going to just be nothing but um, endless squeezing of the life out of you. But if you turn to Christ, you will find in Him there's forgiveness as well as new life. For the rest of us here this morning, as we, we're going to come to the Lord's table, let's take some time to, to consider where in your life there is compromise, where in your life there is this almost innocence, this, this speaking of the lizard into your life. Consider what that may be. If you can't think of it, pray in the Spirit, and God will reveal to you the things in your life that are far from Him that He would like to begin to change in you.
speak to him. See yourself new and alive in Christ. This meal reminds us that the old us is dead and we are now new in him. May that refresh you this morning at the table. May by God's grace and through the Holy Spirit power, may we joyfully put on Christ. Let's pray. Father, your word towards us this morning is on the one hand, it's quite a challenge. Um, It presses deep under our skin. It causes us to take stock of how, how far we have to go as your children to walk in holiness, in righteousness. But it also points us to Christ. In him is the truth. In him is life. And you have given that to us. May we be strengthened this morning to love you, uh, to come alive to the hope that we have, and to point others towards that hope as well. We pray. Amen.